everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Kane, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercane.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book three of The Dark Tower, The Wastelands, Key and Rose. Let's start the show. Our recap of Key and Rose. Roland, Eddie, and Susanna take a back seat in this section as we return to 1977 New York and encounter Jake Chambers. Jake is not dead, but he remembers being killed. He's suffering from the same paradox as Roland is due to the break in the timeline. He remembers his time with Roland, but isn't sure what he should do about it, although he senses that a doorway might be involved. The bulk of this chapter deals with Jake going truant from his private school and wandering the streets of New York City in a bottle episode almost, right, Jay? Yeah. <laughs> Stephen King didn't have the budget to have all four characters in this chapter, so he decided <laughs> let's focus closely on Jake and we'll just do a bottle episode here. Yeah, the actor who plays Eddie wasn't available this week of filming. so <laughs> Not a true bottle episode, though, because they have many locations as we wander around New York City with uh, with Jake from his private school to a cool hip bookstore the best bookstore ever the best bookstore ever the best empty lot in all of new york city mm -hmm. and then of course his uh home with his parents so we start this chapter with jake feeling very similar to roland he feels like he's going crazy and that's really the bulk of this chapter is he's trying to figure out what's going on with himself but i wanted to start with jay the fact that Stephen King seems to be addressing his own writing in this chapter. We start off this chapter at the private school that Jake goes to, and um, he's in his class working on a, an essay for the end of the term. Um, his English teacher and his French teacher are very interested in his work. He's worried about this long rambling essay that he can't remember that he wrote mm -hmm. that, that deals with a lot of his memories about the Dark Tower adventures in the Gunslinger, but then also a lot of other things that we haven't encountered yet. But throughout this section, um, and not only in, in, in the school, but King references lots of literature. Um, T.S. Eliot, Robert Browning, they talk about the Lord of the Flies. Later on, there's a reference to Thomas Wolfe and Faulkner. Um, we get a lot of pulp writers and mystery writers, such as John D. MacDonald and Raymond Chandler. Uh, they drop some some Conan Robert Howard on us later on in, in the bookstore. There's all sorts of references. And as we're talking about his own writing, it almost seems to me that King seems to be responding to his critics in some way. Yeah, I would agree. It's like he's including all of these other respected and revered authors and works and also mixing them together with perhaps a more pulpy and maybe more cult following type of stories in a way that he's trying to say these are these are equal to each other and if they are equal to each other then i can be equal to them too and i happen to agree with that sentiment and you and i have talked about this before that we think king has often gotten short shrift on his skills as a writer 
because he is associated with his genre so closely. It's like, ah, he's just one of those horror writers, whatever. Yep. He's not a serious writer. He's not a respectable writer. He just writes scary, you know, jump out and scare you stories. And we don't need to worry about him or take him seriously. But if we start talking about T.S. Eliot and Robert Browning and Lord of the Flies and stuff like that, then wait a second. This guy actually knows about good writing. He's actually maybe read other books other than the ones he himself has written. So um, maybe we should take him a little more seriously. And not only that, but King has also read, you know, the Travis McGee, John D. McDonald books and the Raymond Chandler pulp books. And in his mind, they are on an equal footing. So when Jake runs into the bookstore, the first thing he sees is a table. And on the table are Faulkner. Chandler and McDonald, and there's no real, you know, there's a little bit difference in price, but they're not in any way sort of segregated to the back of the bookstores, like, oh, here's the mystery stuff and here's the literature. It's just sort of, hey, here it all is. And you also get the sense that we get two perspectives on writing here. We get yeah. the teacher who Jake is worried about because he doesn't remember writing this essay and when he reads it through, it just seems like the ravings of a crazy man or a crazy boy in this case. And Jake's worried mm -hmm. that, oh, my God, they're going to see this and they're going to put me in the best sanitarium they can. Because, of course, my father, the rich executive at the, <laughs> yeah. the rich executive. It's not going to be Arkham Asylum, but it's no, not going to no, be they're, they're not just going to send me to Bellevue. They'll send me the best. It'll be the best, the best. I'm telling you, it's huge, this, uh, this asylum <laughs> I'm sending you to. Um, so he's worried about it. But the teacher loves it, of course, right? Your stream of consciousness, I've never seen it such in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in someone your age. You know, a lot of times they go to this form of writing, but, and then the illusions and even the illusions that he makes in the essay where he talks about T.S. Butch Elliott and um, Robert Sundance Browning is sort of this mm -hmm. mixing, mixing of metaphors, right? The, the pulp Western and the, the literary piece. But I get... To, to my original point, what I'm saying is I don't think King really cares about that critic, that teacher who's, you know, you must read Lord of the Flies. This is an important book and you must read this. I think King is much more happy being respected by Calvin Tower and his buddy in the bookstore who have this yeah. wide range of knowledge from Shakespeare to Robert Howard's Conan books and everything yeah, in between. It's kind of like when you go over a friend's house and you see how they've got whether it's their their bookshelves or their DVD collection or what have you, and you you kind of take in the way that they organize it. Do they organize by genre? Do they organize by um, you know alphabetical order or time period or or what have you? You know, some people might organize by the color of the album art, but whatever it is that strikes their fancy tells you something about them. So when you go into Calvin Tower's bookstore, you see like he puts this array of books together. So he thinks of them as equivalent in quality, interest, value, literary skill, all those things. So that means that it doesn't matter what the other ways you can categorize them. Mm -hmm. We are introduced to him and get to know him as somebody who has impeccable taste and an incredibly deep knowledge of, of literature and all things you know, book-related. So his opinion seems to matter. And his opinion is, these are all awesome books yep. in their own way, but they're all awesome. And I think that 
if we kind of read between the lines a little bit, we can see that King, I, he, he's not that vain that he didn't put like a Stephen King book on that bookshelf along with those. No. The closest we get to that is um, he mentions Donald M. Grant, who is, of course, the publisher of the first editions of the Dark Tower books, uh, the, you know, the specialty publisher that he went through in um, Tower. And of course, we should notice that his name is Calvin Tower, the owner of this bookstore. I'm sure that that's intentional. Yeah, that was a little on um, the nose. Yeah, we're you and I were also discussing off air that possibly even the Calvin might be the deterministic Ka type of piece if he's going back to John Calvin religion wise, and then Tower of yep. course is a Tower. But um, he mentions, oh, I would have pegged you as a Robert Howard kind of kid from the jump, looking for a good deal on one of those nice old Donald M. Grant editions. The ones mm -hmm. with the Roy Krenkel paintings, you know, and so we get this, hey, in this world, there's a publisher who publishes Stephen King, too, but he also is in this book. So we get a little bit of metafiction there. So um, a little bit, you know, and of course, Jake ends up getting an A on that essay. Uh, of course so, he does. <laughs> of course he does. I, I also, this also just came to me, you know, this is one of the few books that we've had by Stephen King where there's not an obvious writer as one of the main characters that tends to be a, a trope of Kings that a main character is a writer or, or one of the secondary characters is. And, you know, we've got Steve, we've got um, Roland, who's a gunslinger. We've got a socialite in Odetta. And then we've got a junkie and Eddie and Jake's just a boy, but we don't have a writer per se. True. But there are characters in Jake's um, orbit who kind of fit into some of Kings. I don't know tool belt the calvin tower character is i think somebody that stephen king would like to maybe aspire to be or mm -hmm. like to hang around with i think like he would want to be his buddy deep no and sit there and play chess with him all day and just talk about you know special uh, donald m grant editions of books and stuff and then we have the teachers and stephen king was a teacher before he was a writer and he has in several of his other books, like in like The Shining, the main character is a teacher who, okay, it's break or school's out for the summer or whatever, and I'm going to go write my book. Yeah. And then I'm going to go crazy and murder my family. <laughs> whatever. But... Don't it's... mind if I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a little bit of that in there. We don't have like a main character, you're right, that, that fits into one of those categories, but... I think King is inserting himself as the analogs uh, for the, the teachers, the teachers who care, the teachers who are smarter than the other adults in the story. Um, I think King is coming through those characters. Yeah. And you mentioned King's sort of writing style and falling back on this trope. And the other interesting thing about this chapter that seems almost like classic Stephen King is hey, we're looking at a kid who's special in some way, right? So you had just mentioned The Shining, and Danny Torrance, of course, has the shine and is able to see with his special vision. Um, in this one, we've got Jake who's seeing things that might be from the future, they may be from the past, they may be from an alternate world. Mm -hmm. um, but in addition to that specialness in some way, he also has to overcome what are really a bunch of adults who are sort of, I don't know, maybe not giving him the respect he deserves. So his, his father calls him the kid, doesn't even really treat him like the son. His mother seems to always be on quaaludes and zoned out for most of the time. 
his yeah. teachers sort of understand him. His his the other kids at school are sort of friends, but not really. There's nobody who really understands this kid, right? Oh, this poor kid walking the streets of New York all by himself. Um, no one really understands him until he gets to those writers. But you know, it does seem like classic Firestarter, Shining kid in an unusual position, and you know, it's sort of top of mind in my head now because Stranger Things did such a good job of capturing that feel of Stephen King '80s child. Yeah, weird things going on, and reading and, this and chapter, the special kid, the kid who, who has like special abilities or uh, doesn't fit in, but yet right has something that's going to make him take that next leap and be more than what you're seeing there. Right, it kind of felt nice. It was almost that classic King style. It was it was like putting on like your favorite pair of sneakers or something. Like you know, it's like ah, these fit perfectly, and I know that I can walk all day in these and and be fine. Like it just felt like like book one, The Gunslinger, was very different and will always be very different than anything King has done. And I think it stands apart, but it. I like the book a lot, but it's still very different. And book two takes us a lot closer to that classic Stephen King. But it was during that time that he was figuring that book out and connecting it to book one that he was also writing all these other stories that we think of as the classic Stephen King. So by the time he starts writing book three here and really fleshes Jake out as a character, then he's he's at full, you know, he's at full Stephen King powers at this point, and he's putting all those same type of characteristics into Jake and Jake's story. Yeah. And Jake becomes a much more interesting character. So, you know, we didn't see him at all in book two. It was a surprise for me to see him here in book three, um, and especially to get, you know, close to 100 pages devoted to just Jake. Like, and I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, I guess he's going to be an important part of this series moving on, even though I thought he yeah. died and was dead. I mean, he was little more than a plot device, really, in book one. Right. Yeah, he was really there just to be sacrificed. Another, how did a, a, a trap, really, for Roland set by the man in black. Um, right. For for Roland to fall in love with and then have to sacrifice. And just another cruel trick played by uh, the man in black. But here, and you know, it didn't help that I listened to a little bit of book one on an audio book. And the narrator of that really made Jake sound a little whiny. Um, and between him being between him being a plot device, between hearing the whininess of Jake, he just didn't seem like a very full or interesting character. But here he has a point of view. He's got, you know, agency. He is much more interesting as we see his life filled out and learn more about his situation with his parents, his feelings towards Roland and what happened, even though he's not sure if they're real feelings or not. He can remember that they're happening. but. Um, it makes Jake a much more interesting character, and I'm interested to see what's going to happen next with him. Yeah, and not only is Jake filled out, but it seems that Jake even kind of grows up a little bit as he is filled out. We can't know more about him without seeing him as more of a more of a complete person, and that makes him feel older than his 11 years. Because even even in the Gunslinger, he was still the same 11 year old kid. Mostly, he spent his time being scared and then suspicious, and then resentful. And we didn't really get a feeling that, yeah, Roland sensed that steel in him and thought he could become a gunslinger one day and all that, but he didn't have the chance. But here, when we see him learn more about what's going on, relying on his own inner strength to deal with this madness that he's 
combating and trying to navigate this world of intruding adults and unobservant and uncaring parents and the false care of his nanny or or his housekeeper and all that stuff. So he's, he has to actually overcome all of these great challenges. And then on top of that, he's dealing with this, you know, fantasy thing of like, did he die or didn't he die? And then he finds the the rose and the key. And we see that he stands up to his father for what might be the first time in his life. And he does so in a way that you can see the probably what Roland would call his inner gunslinger comes out, right? Like his, <laughs> his eyes are ablaze with rage and his father actually takes a step back like he's going to lose it if he if his, reaches a hand out to, uh, to his son at that moment. And he might be right, you know? Like Elmer yeah. Chambers is clearly a, you know, he's a fully grown adult and all that stuff. And Jake is still a little 11-year-old boy. But in that moment, that that might have been a dangerous mistake for his father to like you know slap him at that that point or something. So, um, so yeah, the, Jake is definitely a much more interesting because he is a much more realized character. And Jake starts to also question, even though he's not dead, what exactly happened to him in Roland's world. So yeah, I believe he starts off this chapter by wondering why Roland let him die. And then within a few paragraphs, he starts saying, Roland killed me. And mm-hmm. that's a big difference, right? Did Roland let him die or did he kill him? Are those one and the same? I mean, and it's really causing a lot of consternation, I think, for Jake. Yeah, I, I was kind of curious about that myself. Like, is letting somebody die the same as killing somebody? You know, if you see a train bearing down on somebody standing in the tracks and you don't warn them that the train's coming are you responsible for their death ah the trolley problem right (laughs) yes so i mean i i think the answer is maybe a little less philosophical when it comes to jake and roland because roland roland knew that jake was a sacrifice that jake was a trap and that he would need to sacrifice jake to achieve his goals and he made the decision to sacrifice jake when it became necessary so he still let him die. He didn't put a bullet in his head. He didn't push him off a cliff, but he didn't do anything to try to save him at the time that he could have, perhaps. And he made, and Roland made a choice. So he had a distinct, I mean, the choice was save Jake or chase after the man in black. And Roland made his choice. So in making that choice, you could say he did have an active participation in letting Jake die. And so therefore killing him. But on the other hand, it's also Roland's who's responsible for bringing him back to life by, or yeah. not bringing him back to life, but not letting him die in the street at the hands of Jack Mort or the man in black or whomever may have killed him. So we're told that Jack Mort looks like he's going to push him, but in reality, we know that that's not the instant when he would have died. And that's because there's this odd remembering the future in time, right? So yeah. Jake, we, we start off with Jake already realizing that he's going a little bit insane because of all these things that are happening, but they talk back to when it first happened. And he has this sense of something is about to happen. I know what this person over here on the street's going to do. I know what this hot dog man's going to do. And he's sort of anticipating like in 20 seconds, this is going to happen. In 15 seconds, this is going to happen. And then the car is going to barrel down on me. Mm-hmm. And then when the paths diverge and he's not pushed in front of the car and killed, 
he starts having these dual memories, right? He starts making the new memories as he's going through his life, but also remembering, oh, that's when the lady screams and this is when the priest came and started to talk to me. And this divergence starts is what drives him insane. So I guess Roland has saved his life, but in a way made it worse by making him crazy. Yeah. What a great <laughs> excuse for Roland. Hey, Jake, what about all the times I didn't let you die? <laughs> sure, you might have gone insane, but hey, all in pursuit of the tower. I mean, I saved you from the slow mutants that time, and I I helped you at the way station, and I saved you from the speaking ring and the oracle and the mountains. You always I mean, focus on, on the bad, Jake. You always focus on the bad. So negative. <laughs> so as Jake is starting to go through this divergent timeline where he is remembering forward in time of the events that happened from when he was killed and then went to Roland's world, he's also building these new memories, as you said. And so he's experiencing a timeline that hasn't happened yet or didn't happen originally. And this leads him ultimately on his quest to find the key in the rose. And mm -hmm. on the day that that he does find those things, he it's like New York City has had a, a spell cast on it. Like everybody's in a good mood. The weather is wonderful. The the streets just seem to be cleaner than they've ever been before and, and all this stuff. And businessmen um, playing tic-tac-toe on the yeah <laughs> and like in, in ways that you would just never think of new york city especially in the time period that that jake is you know jake's story takes place like this it, is, it's my understanding that in the late 70s new york city was hell on earth yeah it was <laughs> it, especially manhattan was like not not the cool place for an 11 year old to just be walking around by himself and bumping <laughs> into people saying hey nice day right Oh, watch out when you're crossing the street there, little guy. Hey, you want to play tic-tac-toe with us? It's an awesome day, right? Ha-ha. You know, like that just, that's not it's, New York. It's like the Truman Show almost. Yeah. <laughs> but it did remind me of uh, They Might Be Giants song that I really like. Because I grew up just outside of New York City, and I haven't lived there in a long time now. And I, I get nostalgic for it a lot, especially when I see a movie that takes place in New York. Or like now, I'm reading this book that so new yorkish um it really uh it, it makes me miss the the city that i still think of as home and the might be giant song is is called new york city and i'll play a little bit of it and we'll i'll link to the the youtube video for the whole thing but it's it's great you know it's like it basically has a line that says like everyone's your friend in new york city it's a super fun song really upbeat and it'll make you think that new york is awesome and New York is awesome. <laughs> I think you'll like this song. When it was time to go. We kissed on the subway in the middle of the night. I held your hand, you held mine. It was the best night of my life. Because everyone's your friend in New York City. And everything looks beautiful when you're young and pretty. The streets are big with diamonds and there's just so much So it's interesting because I read something in preparation for tonight where I think it was uh, Bev, our friend Bev Vincent in his Road to the Dark Tower uh, making a, a link between the series of books and The Wizard of Oz that oh. Roland is almost collecting people like Dorothy is on his way 
to find the bad guy and he needs all these you know dorothy needed all these pieces to get to the end and here's the here's the pieces that roland needs he needs he needs eddie and he needs susanna and he needs Eddie. So it's sort of interesting that you brought up the Golden Road. I, I just wanted to mention that because huh. it, it's almost as if subconsciously, you know, I, I hadn't thought of that. But once once Bev pointed that out, I was like, oh, that's an interesting uh, way of looking at it. Um, especially if you think of the beam as following the yellow brick road, perhaps perhaps that'll lead us to a tower. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I, that seems like some pretty good imagery to use in a book about traveling through other worlds a quest through the other world yeah so um and along those lines you know we talked a lot about portals in the drawing of the three but jake has this sense that something needs to happen he keeps thinking about this desert world that he was in and everywhere he sees a doorway he thinks oh this is the doorway i need to go through and yeah i just need to open that door and walk right through and and i'm going to open up this pantry door and boom, I'll be where I need to be. And maybe if I can go through that door, I won't have these voices inside my head and I'll be able to get rid of this divergent timeline. He doesn't put it in those words, but that's sort of his thoughts, that things will be better once I can get through this doorway. So he sees these doors everywhere and he's looking through. Um, yep. And eventually that's what leads him to the bookstore at first. Uh, and then... Obviously, the bookstore doesn't have a doorway, but he picks up a couple of different books along the way while he's there. He picks up Charlie the Choo Choo, a children's book by uh, Burl Evans. And then he picks up a book of riddles. And the book of riddles has all the answers torn out of the back, though, right? Yeah. So those are those are sort of the two things he picks up. Um, he's not sure why they're important, but he feels like maybe they will be important. We don't get a sense of why they're, why they're important in this uh, chapter but then he moves on and ends up in a vacant lot in the middle of new york city um no door there but as you mentioned he starts thinking about the key in the rose and this is what he finds in this empty lot in the middle of new york city yeah it's interesting that jake has this obsession with doors and just the idea of a door that a door is the way back a door is the way to reconnect or or mend what's happening with his mind and it occurred to me after reading that, you know, Jake's third, fourth, and fifth uh, door, you know, miscalculation, that a door has never been part of what Jake's experience has been. No. Eddie came through a door. Susanna came through a door. We met Jack Mort through a door. But Jake came through by being killed. Mm-hmm. That's not a door. So it's weird that he even has this idea of a door. That the, this this construct is it's not in his experience yet. No, but at the same time, it feels like he does have this I don't know magical connection to Roland, and therefore maybe he just he's getting this idea of a door by the fact that Roland has been dealing with doors for a whole book prior to the events of you know Jake returning to the story. Or maybe King just really liked the whole door thing and forgot that Jake never went through a door. And maybe Jake's a English schoolboy and he's looking for that wardrobe to pass through to Narnia. He's read enough portal books that he knows what to do. Yeah, he wants some Turkish delight. I think it's just a plot to open up doors into girls' bathrooms. Isn't that what Jake does in this chapter? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, thought it was the desert. <laughs> You're already a little creepy, Jake. I don't think uh, 
that's the way to pick up girls. <laughs> um, Jake also, without knowing it, seems to put his faith in Ka. As I was reading this section, I noted to myself, you know, he just sort of said, I'm just going to go with it and go wherever this leads me. And I'm like, he's talking about Ka without even realizing it. Um, specifically, he said, Jake turned left in the direction of the East River. We should probably check to make sure those directions are right. Is left on the but yes, Jake, New York is like a broken mirror. <laughs> Jake turned left in the direction of the East River and began to walk blindly forward. He had no idea where he was going, no idea at all. He could only hope his feet would carry him to the right place, as they had carried him to the wrong one not long ago. And that just seems like Ka without him knowing it. Like I'm going to get to where I need to get, and in fact he does. He gets to this empty lot. He finds a key, and when he holds the key. The voices inside his head seem to go away, and he doesn't. He yeah. feels much more at peace, so as if the key has had some sort of magical effect on him, or at least it makes him feel better. And then he finds this rose, which is growing in a small patch of grass that's been painted purple, much like the vision that Roland had at the end of yes, book one. The, the single purple blade of grass. Yes. I think we should start a hashtag. Hashtag because Ka. Because Ka. Because yes. Ka. Why did that happen, Roland? Hashtag because Ka. Yep. The answer for everything. That's right. Ka and magic doors. It'd probably make a pretty <laughs> decent t-shirt. You'd really have to know <laughs> Dark Tower mythology to get it, but hashtag because Ka. So the plot of this chapter takes him to this plot. He passes out after touching the rose. Um, the key makes him feel better. He feels more confident, for sure, because when he goes home, he's able to tell off his parents, tell his father to stop touching him. And um, But this chapter didn't really end where I thought it was going to end. I seemed like it was a lot of setup for Jake finding a door and going to go through a door and end up in the desert back where he was. And I got to the end of this chapter and that didn't happen, Jay. Jay, why didn't that happen? Tell me. I don't know. Although I bet it did a good job of putting us in Jake's shoes for a moment, right? Like he's been opening doors and <laughs> finding that there's nothing behind them except the, you know, the a storage cupboard or a coat closet. But so we got to the end of the chapter figuring we'd open a door and take us somewhere the next step of the story. And no, there's just a 11 year old kid passed out in a vacant lot in Manhattan. Yeah. And then I, he, he ends up going home and reading Charlie the Choo Choo, the children's book. And it doesn't seem like the type of book that would put your kid to sleep in a peaceful mind, but he reads the book, holds onto the key, and the, the chapter ends with him going to sleep peacefully. And that's where we end this chapter. But maybe we should spend a minute talking about this Charlie the Choo Choo book, because it's a little creepy. Sure. I'm not sure exactly where it fits in with this, but um, I have two children, one of whom went through a long obsession with Thomas the Train and it seems very Thomas like a a anthropomorphic train and a nice engineer and the poor old steam engine needs to be put out to pasture because the the diesel trains come along but the illustration that Ned Dameron has in this book and the way that the story is written makes me think oh, this doesn't seem to be a very fun children's book at all <laughs> And the fact that Stephen King spends so much time on it, devoting literally pages of it, seems a little creepy. Yeah, I mean... I mean, here's what we do know, Jay. 
even from where we're at now, there seems to be a lot of references to this book that was written in our world to have connections to the rest of the Dark Tower universe in some way. So there's a right. a person named Martin, spelled differently than the Martin that we're, we've been told about in The Gunslinger. Uh, there's a daughter named Susanna, spelled exactly the same as our heroine Susanna. The world that Charlie is in is, or the the train group that Charlie's a part of is the Midworld Train Association. They mention at some point that the reason that Charlie isn't used as a train anymore is because the world has moved on. I mean, these seem very similar to things that we've heard in other books. So I would imagine between the fact that Jake has found this book, there's so many references to the Dark Tower, and that King has devoted so many pages to it, this seems important in some way. Absolutely. There, there's no question about that. And and this gives us a sense that just like many things from our world seem to have leaked into Roland's world in one way or another, like songs and snippets of nursery rhymes and things like that, or Amico gas pumps. Um, apparently, things from Roland's world have leaked into ours. Mm -hmm. And they're in ways that don't stand out unless you are familiar with the other world, too. So somebody might be reading... Charlie the Choo Choo to their kid as a bedtime story, scaring the living crap out of the kid, but still wouldn't know anything about what Midworld means or who Martin might be or any of those connections. But it's there because good old Beryl Evans, I don't know, maybe he had some sort of, uh, you know, way of uh, some artistic connection that tapped him into Roland's world. Yeah. Uh, I'll be looking for that. Um, I literally read a Thomas book to my my daughter Maddie every night for about two years, the exact same Thomas book over and over again. So it very much fit the cadence, and they're based on a series of books by a British author that I'm assuming King was familiar with. I mean, it, it's enough; it hits enough of the story beats that it seems like King's familiar to this. So I don't know if he read these books to his children at the time. I don't think the television show of Thomas was. Um, here in America, or had even started by the time The Wastelands was being written. So uh, I'd be interested to hear how Stephen King has related this. But um, it was an interesting way to end the chapter with this children's book instead of Jake going through a door. So threw me for a loop. But it was still a Stephen King children's book because it was creepy as hell and made and it has the power to make the people, the characters in it, and the the people reading it really uncomfortable. So. And it's probably a good point to mention that there is a, that came out in 2016, a children's book called Charlie the Choo Choo by Beryl Evans that Stephen King has blurbed and said, if I were ever to write a children's book, it would be just like this. So uh, stamp of approval from wink, Stephen wink, King. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> yes. So we might be discussing that in a future pod episode so if you ever see that book around you might want to pick it up good idea we definitely had a, a few huh moments and also some fun stuff in this section of the book sean didn't we we, we did it's my favorite part of the podcast huh is it just the way i say huh, huh? <laughs> so i was going to point out that the 
Piper song. So Piper is the name of the school that Jake goes to. Um, and that song is, So we hail the halls of Piper, hold its banner high. Hail to thee, our alma mater, Piper, do or die. So you're pretty common I'm pretty school. pumped up right right now yeah. just hearing that. Yeah, the Piper. Go Piper, Piper, Fighting Piper. Pipers. The Fighting Pipers there. That's a good one. Um, so that is interesting because it's got this sort of rhyme cadence that's very similar to Charlie the Choo Choo's rhyme that gets repeated over and over again towards the end of the chapter. So it's interesting that Piper starts with that. And then by the time we get to Charlie, don't ask me silly questions. I won't play silly games. I'm just a simple choo-choo train, and I'll always be the same. I only want to race along beneath the bright blue sky and be a happy choo-choo train until the day I die. So we've got Even the same... with the same word. Yep. Die. Not really the best way to end a children's book, but okay, I guess <laughs> it's all right. Um, same with the... Now that I'm thinking about it, same with the high school fight song. Might not die is maybe not the best thing to talk about, but... Um, just interesting that it's the same cadence, the same rhyme scheme. Um, made me say to myself, huh? Yep. Jay, did you have any fun stuff? I did. Or? Uh, I had a, a huh about, in a previous chapter, I think it was the first chapter of the book, King used the phrase, blameless blue sky, talking about the sky over the over the Shardix uh, forest. Mm. And I was struck by that. That term, I thought it was a really poetic way of talking about the the sky. And then he used it again in this chapter. So I just found myself feeling like uh, King's repeating himself. So that's what made me say, huh? Hey, when you got a good phrase, use it as many times as possible. <laughs> yeah, just ride it into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was, um, there was a passage when... Uh, Jake is thinking back to how his father like uses the sheer force of his will and influence to make whatever it is that he's talking about or make whatever it is he wants to be the case to to happen and he calls those facts and I thought that that was interesting that all the way back in the the 80s when Jake was 11 years old that uh Elmer Chambers was creating alt facts for everybody at yes. his network. At his network, yep. <laughs> that doesn't apply to anything nowadays, though. No. King was <laughs> awfully uh, prescient in this depiction there. One of the things that I wanted to mention was that um, the lot that Jake ends up in is currently being potentially developed. He sees a sign on his way in for development. Um, right. And it is Turtle Bay Luxury Condominiums, which is is the name of the company that is eventually gonna gonna be there. And then Jake sees some graffiti painted on the inside of the lot, and he whispered the words aloud: "See the turtle of enormous girth on his shell. He holds the earth. If you want to run and play, come along the beam today." Wait, what? It said something about the beam. <laughs> crazy right yeah and as we know from the last chapter roland told us the story of the other side of the beam from the bear is a turtle right right so, so clearly we've got a turtle as a guardian yes and 
In this chapter, Jake supposed the source of this strange little poem, if not its meaning, was clear enough. This part of Manhattan's east side was known after all as Turtle Bay. But that didn't explain the goose flesh which was now running up the center of his back. Or his clear sense that he had found another road sign along some fabulous hidden highway. So the beam makes sense to me because I've heard about the beam. I'm not sure what the turtle means, but the turtle reminded me of one of my favorite stories that uh, Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, said. He was doing a lecture and he was talking about the way the universe works and gravity and the Big Bang and how the whole solar system works. And of course, everyone thought he was a great lecturer. He's very famous. You can actually get those lectures on audiobook and, and listen to him if you want. But during one of these lectures, he gave it and a, a little old lady came up to him. And this may be apocryphal, may not be, but it's, it's mm -hmm. a great story either way. This little old lady comes up to him and says, that's fine, Mr. Feynman, all those things you said, but I know the truth. And the truth is, the earth sits on the back of a turtle. And of course, he sort of chuckled to himself knowing that, hey, I know how it really works, but I'll humor this lady and, uh -huh. and give her. So, ma'am, if that's true, then what's holding up the turtle? And she's like, oh, you think you're smart, but I know it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> all the way down to what, though? All the way down, yeah. So, <laughs> and I'm sure King is familiar with that because it seems like that's a, a reference to that. So. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. Another fun stuff. Yeah. And is that the same turtle from It? Who knows? Could be. Who knows? Could be. Right? Or Could is be. it Gamera? The <laughs> sometimes on again, off again foe of Godzilla. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, so is is every guardian every guardian of the beam a giant robot? That's interesting. I mean, it seems like North Central Positronics was responsible for them, so I don't know. Would they make all of them giant robots, or would there be something else? I, I honestly don't. I, I hadn't thought about it. And it seems like if you're going to make 12 giant robots, I would make like 12 bears, not like a bear and a turtle. Like, it doesn't seem like a turtle's as cool of a guardian as a bear. Yeah, but Gamera really kicks ass. <laughs> oh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> he can retract his hind legs and turn them into jets. So. <laughs> well, when you put it that way. Exactly. Why don't you have 12 turtles then and no bears? <laughs> uh, you win this time. Logic. Oh, The one other fun thing that I wanted to point out is that when Jake is in the lot, he actually says the words, wastelands which seems important because that's the title of the book as well that's right jake's english teacher would have told him when you hear the title of the book mentioned in the book pay close attention because that's Make important note. and it's interesting because he said jake found he was not saddened by charlie's relegation to the weedy wastelands at the outer edge of the midworld train yards quite the opposite good he thought that's the place for him that's the place because he's dangerous let him rot there and don't trust that tear in his eye. They say crocodiles cry too. Which brings up a good point. Why not crocodiles for guardians? Yeah. <laughs> well, they do have such short arms. They can never reach oh, their true. wallets. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Us getting giddy means that this must be the end of another episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Indeed. So thanks, Jay, for your discussion tonight. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. For our next episode, join us as we cover Book 3 of the Dark Tower of the Wastelands, the Door and Demon section. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.